and welcome to Theory Talk. I am Joseph Weissman. I would like to thank you for joining us for the second part of the Halton Problems series in which we discuss Francois Laruelle. The discussion begins with a question about philosophy and branding. Please enjoy. two of theory talk and um this we're going to talk about laurel and i'll just open it up right right now and then with the question how is philosophy's brand doing today and i'm going to submit that it's not doing too good that philosophy in a time where writing and thinking have never been more important that it has never been i don't know but at the same time there's unprecedented research and development i think of i mean and 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 you know besides you know, there's very few things that that you know besides speculative realism and accelerationism and then then non philosophy that well, you know that, I, that made me think that maybe there's hope for for the future of thought. I, I'd put it in relation to the copyright laws in the in the 30s. I mean, think about what's what's open domain, what's public domain. Think about all the philosophers, the majority. Let's be honest, of philosophers that are public domain. And yes, you can pay money. Pretty much you're not paying a premium. You're paying very little money to get, um, unless you're getting the super scholar editions. You're, if you want a physical copy of the thoughts of the worker, you're, you don't have to go through capitalism to get it, to, to, to get to Spinoza, to get to um, Plato and Aristotle. A lot of this is, uh, if there is copyright translated uh, you know, works of this, a lot of them are preceded by many, many, many different... Uh, translators and you know even alone if you want to know if you want to learn you know Attic Ionian Greek and read Plato in the original Greek you can go to um, Gutenberg uh, the project Gutenberg right and, and, and you can download the Greek and have it um, which I look at but I don't read um, but my point of being is that I've never seen it when I when I think back to like you know how reading Nietzsche in the German is one way and is actually accessible digitally versus reading a lot of these new uh, philosophers. There's, I, I think of all the presses that are... That we, 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 you and I could probably divide works of philosophy due to the press. You, when you think University of Minnesota Press, you think, um, you know, both works of Deleuze and Guattari... Um, when you think uh, Columbia, I think Logic of Sense and Difference of Repetition, right? When you think Continuum, you think Badoo and all the works that he published through Continuum. Which and, and while we're name-dropping these huge monsters whose, you know, in, influence on the overall health of theory and philosophy today may be debatable. I don't know. I want to. I want to single out a few that I really like. Maybe, that, but, I'm but saying, they, they, these are great yeah. institutions. Obviously, I, 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 meant, I meant to say that there is a capitalist apparatus. There is. There is. Sure. A, there is a marketplace. And it no, is, no. And it even is. even the even the ones we love and that that you know give people and our peers work and like you know su- supply the, the life of the lifeblood of theory today, right? Yeah. Like, and I mean, again, even the ones like you know Urbanomic or Univocal and MIT and all these places that do so per- permit this like rare 
you know, mutant kind of new theory to, so, to exist. To go right? beyond money, this, what, I, what I'm getting at is what was the circulation of thought for Plato and his dialogues? I mean, just imagine the, the, the work that went into, first of all, his limited sphere of discussion and how that as an oral tradition may have been carried out to the four corners of the globe with people retelling the stories, the retelling the dialogues um, versus them being actually written down, right? There's a play of morality and, um, and the written going on here but what I mean is when we talk about a circ- the, 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 the speed the velocity of the circulation of thought right today I would counter to because you you were bringing up a, a marketplace you were bringing up financial profitability of philosophy and that's well, that's very questionable and that's always been questionable but when I'm I'm talking about the the availability of the circulation sure, of thought no, no, no look and that's I, 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 yeah no no and that's the, the more real concern, despite the hypocritical relations with money, which are, are you know, what, what, whatever, they're invariant across every industry. We're certainly not trying to single out, per, you know, and especially the people who are trying the hardest to bring philosophy and writing and thought to the world and in a time when it desperately, desperately needs it. So, um, you know, I, I, whatever, keep, keep, keep writing, keep thinking, and let's try to keep thought public and open and alive. And, I, you know, I, you look, I'm really not trying to dwell on the hypocrisy of, of and but I don't know. But, there, but, there, but there, there, there are there philosophy is never there are, a bestseller. There, well, but at the same time, I mean, there is a performative contradiction between philosophy's supposedly universal address and its rather narrow yeah. elite, you know, group of, you know, it's it's. Well, the same it, with same it's, with Catholic religion, for example, right? Yeah. Think about the masses in Latin till the seventies. Yeah. The sixties. And and think about the gets back to just circulation of thought. Get back to the Gutenberg Press and what that put pressure and helped to foment uh, part of the Protestant Reformation's argument against the Catholics is that there was a vernacularity of language of the written um, text and the sermon. You need to preach. You need to read. You need to sing in the vernacular in order to really invest desire into the religious assemblage. Um, so it's the same thing with philosophy, though. You're right. It's, it's, there's always been a sort of um, allowing the flows to leak, but never really... So in that sense, I mean, just to get back to it, because there's always been this concentration and this um, lack of interest, lack of saleability. Right. It's always had a Right. No, it kind of comes back to that too. It's it's always had those who... uh, Now, on the other hand, this is why there are examples and I don't... I've never read them and I don't discourage them or discredit them from from outright, but there are some... And I think it's in terms of marketing intelligent moves and in terms of reaching a broader audience, maybe philosophically is intelligible intelligent news, but there are these books, right? Philosophy and books, right? Um, philosophy and The Simpsons. Philosophy and Seinfeld. I mean, there are these books. I mean, you, you go to you go to Barnes & Noble. If, if there are still bookstores you can, and they have a philosophy section, you can go there and you can find, you know, um, philosophy and um, right. pretty much any popular culture thing. And that is, to me, I mean, to me, that's a good thing. I, I, I See, I wonder. It feels like a brutal truncation 
of of but it, it's, philosophies aus, auspicious potentialities never, to brutally truncate its the celibate moment of like philosophy and I feel like this is the problem of of all the Deleuzian books honestly is because there yeah. is this beautiful moment of Deleuze plus blank where you can substitute anything yeah. And but, it's like whatever the series is called Connections, and they plug in a bunch of machines to Deleuze and see how they function. It's it's, it's fine, whatever. I'm like, playing kind of devil's advocate, right? Sure. Because I think there's a large part of me that um, would look down on it, but then the same part of me thinks, "Why am I looking down?" Because it's, sure. it's a question. The question of it comes back to the conjunction of the and. Now, Laurel would be able to riff. Uh, this is philosophy's mode, principle mode, and I get that, but. What I'm trying to get at is that it's not just a symptom of capitalism because I do say that, and so that's that's my negative, my positive, and yes, there's a dumbing down, truncation. But one never reads one book of philosophy and says I'm done. I've I've got it, right? Like I I don't need to go any further. So there's a, the, so what I mean is there, there's a there's a there's a stepping stone functionality to these books where. Um, if done tastefully in the right way, again, I'm not judging the books particularly. I've never read any of them, but in, no, terms, no, of I, the, in I, terms of the concept, I, I, I love this argument. It's like Wick, it's like Wittgenstein's ladder, right? Like there, you you need them to get up to your beautiful levitating platform in this in the clouds, yeah. but you can discard it once you're once you're up, once you're there, right? Because can, for as for as much as we might shit on the <laughs> everyday right. populace and just say like, ah, oh, everyone, they're all stupid and they don't think. That's not true. I mean, I feel, I feel like. Um, philosophy is not something thought about on the second order for most people, but that doesn't mean that they don't have philosophical intuitions or, or, or angles or, or thoughts or strings of thoughts or associations where it's a question of, of a genre of reading, though. I mean, especially today with um, the availability of media and the delivery of media, um, you know, Netflix is not quite the same as going to your public library. So, but for those who do choose to read, right? I mean, there's a sense in which, um, for not for everyone is philosophy a a system of language where it allows for the same types of um, outlets for which one goes to reading in the first place. I mean, you and I both love fantasy uh, literature. And there's a sense where which that fulfills a per- certain part of us, um, but not everyone goes to fantasy literature in the same way that you and I go to philosophy. To um, so there's there's different levels of reading. There's different. Um, you're talking about different kinds of people. I'm also talking about, for example, the the fact that, and this goes back to Aristotle, that not everyone is able to live the contemplative life. Yeah. I mean, I'm not making excuses for them, but there's a sense in which. Um, and philosophy's never been sexy. I and mean, it's, like, honestly, and, 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 and so far as like, you know, philosophy. not since Socrates and Alcibiades in the symposium <laughs> has philosophy been sexy, right? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't wonder if it's the other way. If philosophy is a sign of of disease and unhealth, is in where like on the part of a culture, right? That you only start getting. You know, really curious about philosophy. Very Nietzsche in here. Well, you're I, talking about, but you're look, talking I, about I'm uh, not decadence, semi- right? Sure. And look, I'm not. I'm not trying to be some idealist. Like philosophy's got some world historical destiny. No, no. I think but, you had something there, though. I think. I think you did. Um, but we, uh, you know, just to come back to this theme of like we need philosophy in dark times. Is that the only way we survive against stupidity is by reproducing philosophy and fighting it? 
And I, I don't know. I, like one of the things I think about is like, I you know, like I think we definitely I, 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 there's this step change, right, in terms of how the collective informs itself, right. And I think this this idea of like, you know, different eras correlating with different informational and social and political schema without necessarily having this causal relation, right? Like we can, you know, we can identify that with the invention of the printing press, there's this this new, you know, m- modality, right, for the reproduction and accumulation of, of cultural data and, like, m- like techniques for collective information and, and mm. deformation, reformation, et cetera, right? And, I, and, you know, and I think with, you know, with automation and, like, instantaneous communication, right, like, we really have, I mean, I think in a, in a certain way, this is, like, what Virilio is talking about, and this is really the sense of singularity that I think about is, like, the 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 collapse of, of distance and then today, you know, with the printing press, right? Like this faithless reproducibility and so on. And then like today we have the, the collapse of like, you know, t- time itself or something. I don't, I don't know, whatever. There's like, I mean, there's, there's something about like a, a kind of philosophical modernity and, and, and mood Right, like is correlated with certain kinds of technical implements for the the means of, of communication and technology. Right, like there's a, I mean, this is the thing Deleuze gets at in the postscript, right, about this again, this correlation without causation mm. between, like, social, you know, like, patterns and structures, and then you know, like, the the machinic and like just infrastructural components that that make them up. You know, to, to sort of bridge that, I would say it's interesting to think about the state of philosophy today um, versus, and in relation to perhaps, the state of comedy. Can one think the state of philosophy, the zeitgeist of philosophy, in terms of its own zeitgeist of comedy, right? Is Another there Wittgenstein, right? Contemporan- a- the, con- the contemporaneity... Of the two, right? Like, um, what I mean by that is, and obviously, the, usually it's thought of in terms of politics and, and comedy, but in terms of philosophy and comedy, I think it's it's also it's more, maybe more abstract. But not, not always. Um, Again, is like is Zizek not this like realization of Wittgenstein's thing about like we can make a philosophy book that's just jokes? And um, yeah, I don't I don't know. Like, there's. There's there is something wonderful about Zizek that way, you know, about like it's it's anti comedy and often just straight racism and sexism, but nevertheless, like, is very that is very much the comedy of our times. As, well, yes, yeah, so that's, that's that's an extreme example. I was actually uh, I would bring it back to no, the, sorry, that is ex- no, 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 pretty no. extreme. I bring it back to like, um, and this is something uh, that is interesting to think about, like, just the state of the everyday, the generic sitcom. Right, like I know that the, one of the most popular, if not the most popular, sitcoms today is still running. I assume is uh, the Big Bang Theory. Right? How did it become? It's interesting because it's a popularization of of science in turn. Yep. And, and think yep. about think about Zizek makes you realize that it's like comparing, you know, philosophy and David Lynch is not so much different than picking up a book of Zizek. You know what I mean? Like, ultimately, they really have about the same remit and, like, relevance. You know, I don't know. You really have to pick Zizek's books to find the ones where he's actually doing his metaphysical, epistemological work, you know, and not just telling jokes every 20 minutes, right? Well, yeah. I mean, that's... But 
I can see why you went to Zizek uh, for the comedy thing, and, so, I, and I, I didn't mean think, to bury it there. Necessarily. No, no, no. I, I think he is—he he is one of those writers that is very funny, um, and I think it's much easier for a literary mind to be funny. But there are these examples of a of a sort of humor and a um, yeah. Look at these two. Sorry, the dogs are just having a having a real fun no, time. This. Sorry. Uh, no, Zizek, but I think um, another person, and I know that um, our professor, um, uh, and I'm blanking, I'm sorry. Winchester or Littlefield? Winchester. Yeah, okay. That. Sorry, these are names of our undergrad philosophy professors. Dr. Winchester, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was blanking. Uh, he talks about, and I, I know you and I believe the same thing, when you read Nietzsche, it's hard not to laugh on every page there's there's something obviously this is one of his goals right is one of his goals he he detests the fact that he has to write in german I mean, he feels like there's a there's a mobility and motility of thought related to the mobility and uh fluency of a language and he feels like german is a kind of stilted technical uh language whereas there's a romantic and literally in both senses flow to italian right there's a there's a speed there's a he talks about it as a allegrissimo, right? That Italian has this, in terms of like a musical symphony, right? It has this 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 speed of locution, um, this this. It's also the speed of thinking, right? Yeah, yeah. that that for him that that's his goal to write in, and I think that that's what he tries to achieve in his German um, is this. Well, he talks about like. The lightness of, of being, right? And, it's, and it sounds frenetic in German. The dancing right? of, of right. becoming, right? Like, so there's something there's something that, that, that he tries to do to deform the, the German language. And, I mean, right. you know, Winchester talks about how difficult he is to read in the original German because of his proclivity to sort of go beyond the standard, typical, uh, stereotyped, overcoded, uh, typical German language. Um, and has... I mean, you, and you even see this in his translated works where he's he's constantly going to the French, to the Greek, to the Roman, to the uh, Italian to express an idea, um, like amor fati, right? That's just one of his words uh, that he'll bring up. But I, I, I brought that up because I was trying to say that there's a, there's a comedy to Nietzsche where he's, and he makes this, point where we have to start thinking differently so that slowly we can start feeling differently, right? That there is this more primordial substrate to thinking and it's related to our, you know, uh, socio- I feel like there's a third term there that it's like we have to act differently so that we can yes. think different. And, and there's something that I always took away from that that struck me as very, I don't know, like something wonderful about that little idea, like that... That like you know you're that the that the the concept comes so much later than the affect that you don't even realize that yes. it's chronologically yes. related anymore. That's a very nature right? point. Like, yeah, the, the, and, and it's a rethinking I think of Kant's three judgments, right? I mean, Kant starts with the critique. These three critiques, sorry, is it's three judgments. What I meant was he starts with he starts with the the critique of pure reason and then moves to ethics. Mm. Finally, moves on to judgment. So he right. he starts with 
thinking, reasoning, moving on to acting, questions about acting, and then moves on to feeling. And I think Nietzsche doesn't want... I never feel like Nietzsche in any work really tries to separate out the, the three in a way that could be hierarchical in that sense. I think for Nietzsche that um, is why he, at the beginning of Beyond Good and Evil, takes up this question about why do we consider you know, uh, a priori synthetic judgments to be necessary, right? Why is, why is, why is it, why is it necessary for the metaphysician to think that? Um, and, and I, I, even in his first work, um, on the birth of tragedy, he's still trying to justify existence and he does it through art, right? So the question of acting, this nihilism, the question of acting, the value of being, the question of of thinking even about acting, right? Because one can think not to act even though that's an action. It's justified on that third order of, of aesthetics, of, of, of judgment. And I think that's why Deleuze writes his, his book on Kant's critique of judgment, right? Because he's trying to... And this is the same thing as, as this tri-dimensionality of Kant Deleuze finds in... Um, and the orders of knowledge of Spinoza, right? There's a first order of knowledge, which is confused. Uh, it's not clear and distinct ideas. The second order of knowledge is a little bit better, but it's really that, that's that third order of knowledge in the fifth book of the, the ethics that's that subterranean, um, you know, disorganization of, of, of thoughts, percepts, ethics, right, that that it's this third order of knowledge that's where all the fun stuff happens. And Right, and I, I'm, I'm tempted to try to link it to Eternal Return somehow, maybe, maybe through this, I don't know, I was, I, was, I was trying to maybe get us back to this idea of like what constitutes philosophical modernity, and mm-hmm. like, again, what's the problem with philosophy's brand today? And oh, is, is, there, is there one, or it's mood? Yeah, that's yeah. maybe even a better way to say it, but like, you know, with with eternal return, it's like we're sort of confronted with this modality of time that, like, it, it sort of involves tangled potencies. Mm-hmm. You know, between different kind of orders of things or different, you know, r- regimes of temporality and speeds and so on. And you know, in other words, the eternal return sort of confronts us with, you know, a, a time that can be deformed like a, a Mobius strip, mm-hmm. right? Like, into where we would be sort of you know, concurrent with an infinite seriality, right? Like, uh, you know, this this division of time, right? Like yeah. that, that sort of becomes an infinity, becomes an eternity, becomes sort of disjointed. And it's the affect, the kernel of the affect that's drawn out of that that thought experiment. But but there's a function here too. I guess maybe would be the thing that I'm th- that I'm trying to, or one of the things I want to I want to try to articulate, which is that like that philosophical and scientific modernity are, like, coextensive to the degree that they both involve this, like, extraction and isolation of time as an Mm -hmm. independent reality, an independent variable in terms of physical laws and functions, right? Like, but but for Nietzsche, it becomes an an independent reality in a way that, like, I don't don't know, like, you know, sort of, like, has these, like, resonances with... Like I, I don't know, like the 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 problems that culture itself finds itself in, and I guess maybe this is the thing connecting with Hamlet, right? About like time is out of joint. Yes. And yes, and, and, and Deleuze and, brings that up, right? Yeah. Right, and I mean, like, is it is it 
is this just sort of a metaphor about broken a broken break a reality breaking down and like why is this is, a, is this a reality about modernity where exactly like does this is this like the moment or the you know like of you know like the 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 development of you know an in you know a, a making independent reality now, of time itself when, and 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 then even when Hamlet says that is this the term of time is Kronos or is it Kairos right there's something interesting is it the time of the event right or is it the time of <clears throat> you know of beings or whatever you want to say is it the time is it the linear chronological time or is it the the Chironic or the time of Kairos right is it is it the time of uh, of the event and I think this question about modernity too um and actually, what I was going to bring back was was I was going to bring you back to eternal recurrence, right? I mean, like I brought up Amor Fati, the yeah, love yeah. of fate, and I think that the way that I break down um, the eternal recurrence, even though it's not sedimented, but I break it down in terms of the the effect of the affective value of the eternal recurrence in terms of loving your fate, because you know Nietzsche says Amor Fati, he describes it, he also describes. Um, um, Right, like, be, become who one is, right, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, no, like, this is this is precisely this the language. Becoming. There's there's something yeah. there's something Nietzschean and Simon Don that he never brings up Nietzsche, but there's something about it that the way I brought down the way I think of the eternal occurrence in the simplest way is, um, you know, act as though you had to relive your life at every moment in the same way that you have, right. And so it's like, think of the, the things that would most fulfill your existence at this moment and go and carry it out, right? That's, that's the command, but the, but the thought experiment is, is sort of, if one had to, as you said, repeat this eternal, infinite seriality of one's life, and that were the reality of one's life. At the end of it, Nietzsche says, right, do you, do you despair or do you rejoice? Right, there's something, and, 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 and if, 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 and so really what Nietzsche is calling for is a disparation, is a disparation of problems in, in, in our everyday existence, is if we can imagine a better seriality of our infinite existence so that we don't despair, so that we affirm existence, so that we rejoice in um, our lives, you know, then we should be disparating the problems of life in a way that solves those problems much more in harmony with uh, this this vision of affirmation. Okay, so this gets us back to extinction, right? Like this is this this like strikes me as mm-hmm. part of what's going on with with what what Brazi is kind of talking about towards the end of Nile and Bound. He's talking about like Freud and the death drive and and yes, like the the sort of the the death oriented temporality of life, right? Like. But but there's something about like with philosophical modernity, humanity's thinking becomes newly dynamic and capable of future orientation, and that this is where like new ideologies. Can, I don't know. Like I, I feel like I'm glossing pretty heavily, so but he doesn't he doesn't go particularly deep on this, even though it's like he's picking up themes throughout the book. And it's funny because like he he does I don't know just something like in passing is that like he'll talk about in the Deleuze section like oh no you know like. 
it's a very different reading of Freud than he sort of in a, in a much more subtle one than he gives in the conclusion, which is sort of much flatter and kind of flattens out the repetition and questions of death and so on, right? Like, and, and he sort of does not take it from a Deleuzian frame, but rather just a much straighter one about like, you know, extinction presents us with, you know, like the, the kind of problem that we need a, a new sort of future orientation, yeah. like as a collect as a species and a collective, and that like you know in some ways a investment. Lot of, Right. And some, I mean, in the, the losing Guattarian sense. Well, uh, sure. Investments. And, and like, and is this not like also a way to express what's going on with, you know, like philosophy today is that it's like haunted by the time remaining, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and. Well, this, 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 this is back to the viability of the sort of territoriality of the earth, right? I mean, the investment, the unconscious investment revolutionary would be. At the same time, a re-territorialization, right, where it's 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 to preserve, but the conscious interest is jobs. I mean, that's just the one word it's brought down to in political pandering and all that shit. Unemployment, right? It's it's, yeah. it's down to jobs that regulations are hurting the economy. Blah blah blah. You bring it down to GDP and all this shit, and you filter out actual uh, individuals. Um, but if, when but you re you, you filter, filter, the you filter them out, but you bring them back in as, right. as job holders, as in, in integrated into a capitalist. And you've abstracted over the singularity of the natural world, and the only one we yeah we have. But but but, but what I mean is that there, there's a tension between investments and interests, and yeah. and the, and, the, and the paradoxical thing is that it's not like invest, unconscious investments are better, because what Deleuze and Guattari argue from the very start of Antiedipus is that fascism was desired. And it wasn't just desired because it was an interest. No, people get, the off, force of it get off on it, right? The force yeah. of it wasn't just because it was an interest. I mean, it was an investment. It was an investment before it could ever be justified and rationalized through interests. Um, and without those investments, the, the, the rationalization of interests would not... So that... And, and you, have to, you, have, you have to posit that to follow up with what they're saying because... What they what they argue is that it's not like the German people uh, were were duped. They weren't fooled. If if well, they were fooled, I, if they were fooled, then that means that the interests right. would have come first, and somehow their investments would have gotten perverted. And that just it, not not fooled maybe, but over maybe I would say overloaded. Right? Like this is what I think about the the step change in the power of communication technology that like radio meant. Right? This dislocation in, of the human voice that enabled it to be instantaneously transmitted in all of its ferocity and and again it's like this uni, this new univocity right like that I just meant I just meant fooled in the sense in which that Deleuze and Guattari use it is that it's not as though fascism came about and the the scapegoating of Jews and um this way of, of, of it was of, not presented as in in people's it's not rational. As though afterwards, they said, "This isn't what you promised us. This isn't what you wanted." I mean, the the fooling will will be much more in our day and age with Trump, and we could talk about that. But it would be too. I think it'd be. We're. I still feel like we're a little too close to it. But with um, with with Hitlerian fascism, at least as an example, they want to, uh, you know, at least. And but but you know, I mean. And they also bring it up. It's not as though the German fascism in the in the 30s and 40s constituted a necessity a, a necessity of historical um, 
progress, right? They they want to say it, they actually do want to say it was a singularity, that it was. It's not as though it's a natural outcome of the philosophy of history in the rash. The real is the rational. The rational is the real sense. They want to they want to describe its singularity, um, and and I think that's. I mean, this is for example, um, what I brought up. I brought up with with Lindsay. I mean. Uh, there's a great movie called The Believer on Netflix. Um, it's Ryan Gosling in a, in a very early role. He actually does a great job. He's we find out in the midst of the movie that he's you know this kind of rebel um, Jew Jewish kid, and he's in this. He's arguing with like his um, not his rabbi, but with the teacher in this Jewish school, and he grows up in his early. 20s to become a skinhead so right this is the whole it's the self-hating Jew thing but it's done in a really really smart way um, because it like sieves out where the um, antagonism comes from and the, the singularity is his argument with his teacher and his argument with the teacher is about the uh, story of Abraham and Isaac um, and how this is totally fucked up on God's part that he, you know, would force Abraham to sacrifice his son. And even though the angel came out and it's the day of sex mocking of saving his son, there's something where it's like Abraham raising the knife and having the, the, the actual thought and desire of carrying it out is equivalent to killing a son. And now there's something, there's something... Some kind of teleological perverse. suspension. Yes. <laughs> there's something perverse. Uh, about it on on his behalf and and this, this that constitutes the kernel of him becoming the anti-semite and then this that's actually a really good movie but I brought all that up because um, when I was talk when we were watching the movie I was talking to Lindsay about how the whole and this goes back to Trump the whole conspiracy theory thing because you can't you can't appreciate the last 18 months without understanding how much conspiracy theorist, alt-right. Not just the white nationalist wing of alt-right, but the conspiracy theory um, fringe of... Alt- what What could f- thinkers and writers and philosophers have done to fight this, this stupidity? What can we do? I know that's a huge question, but I'm, I'm curious what you have to say. Um, I don't think that there is... Well... Besides, I guess, I just continuing like, to I think and write. I feel like philosophy in its dialogue gets, uh, it gets muted. It's, it's, I mean, when we talk, we don't, you don't have, you know, Noam Chomsky can make his documentaries, but he doesn't go on MSNBC or Fox News, right? I mean, like. Should he? Should uh, you just up on some of those shows, right? Well, to hawk his latest book or whatever. Yeah, but what I'm saying is. And, and you use Zizek, and Zizek's a kind of singularity himself because he's not necessarily left or right, even though he does sometimes go to the extreme right for his own perverse ways of talking about things. And uh, I think some, some of it is trolling, but, um, you know, I, philosophy is, if it, if it had a voice, if it reached enough people to actually make a difference in uh, democratic, in our republic, um, it would be considered a liberal voice, because um, with very about- few exceptions. With very few exceptions, of course, there are going to be some exceptions. But I do feel like it would be a um, 
I mean, most philosophers refer to the, the civic and virtue. So that, it, it would fall right? under the yeah. same moniker of mainstream media, of liberal elitism. I mean, this is one of the things that was brought out to say why the Democrats lost, is because they, you know... Right, this actually seems really dangerous, in fact, the fake news and the, the sort of the immunization against thinking, um, even if it has the slightest hint of being critical or clinical. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and, and, and again, right, it's not to attack the populars, popularizers, right? They're, I think they're doing God's work and, you know, anyway, God bless anyone who's still reading anything these days, right? But I, I, I don't know. And again, like without being idealist and like philosophy has a special destiny, but like, you know, are, are there, are there specific things we should focus on in terms of the idea of like how do we r- restore civic virtue? Are there are there you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> oh, are there things man. philosophy can help us with? You, here? you do so so. I mean, just the way you say that, you do. You know, when when Nietzsche talked about decadence, uh, for example, in um, in. Um, It's not the gay science, it's uh, Twilight of the Idols, I believe, when he talks about decadence. Um, He makes the point that a society has to expend its energy in usually one or another way. Um, Now, obviously, this is grossly, you know, simplifying, but he basically says, like, it's either expended in culture or in war. And there's a sense in which when it expends it in war, it afterwards it retracts and it and it overexpends in um and it's in its culture and becomes decadent. And you can see this in like the fall of the Roman Empire, yeah. for example. So um but for him decadence is a loaded term, right? I mean I think for him, he sees both positives and negatives in it. Totally. And this gets back to cycles. We talked about the we talked about the American political system here. Now, in the past fifty years since Truman, the only party, besides when um, Nixon resigned, because that didn't really count, the only party to have to to have won to have to have gone twelve years in a row was George H. W. Bush. It went Reagan, Reagan, Bush. But he lost re-election, and most of the time, uh, incumbent presidents have Sorry. no. You're fine. Have a huge have a huge advantage, especially when there's been what three so, Republicans in office or whatever, right? So, like, if you think about that as a part of the reality of why Hillary Clinton lost. Oh yeah, the fundamentals were like against her, and this is one of the interesting we things just, people don't sort of talk about. That. Right? And even yeah. if she got elected, she probably, the odds would have been uh, against her to get reelected. Yeah. But, uh, okay, well, well yeah, I'm let's saying, not get too short because no. we actually got to, we should wrap this up um, here pretty soon before we get too, too distracted. And also my computer's running out of battery, so. Oh, do you not have a? Uh, here, let's see. I've got one with me. It's right over here. No, we, we, got a, we still got a lot, a lot of time for dinner. Cool. Yeah, now, okay, now we can talk about uh, Okay. Um, 
But I brought that up because, I mean, I'm not sure that philosophy in its... This, this gets back to what I was saying about everyday... Oh, for example, remember in 2012, you had um, all the Occupy Wall Street and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that had a philosophical... You, I mean, not overtly, but it, it, indirectly, it had, a, it had a philosophical impulse in it. But philosophers don't... They kind of, by definition, don't have power, right? I mean, like, there are few examples of it. We can imagine, for example... And Do they not have intellectual power? Cultural power? Well, Social think power? about Plato and his... You know, and scholars are... This is one of the favorite... You could, you could, you could just devote yourself to ancient... Right. Uh, Plato and his dialogues, it's a question of when certain dialogues were written... Did he write these dialogues before he went to be the subservient uh, court philosopher for the tyrant of Syracuse? And what did he get there? Uh, uh, Martha Nussbaum, a very, uh, you may have heard of her, a very prominent ancient scholar, writes that, you know, there's actually something good that came about of Plato selling himself off you know, to the highest bidder uh, as court philosopher because when he came back, he had a he had a more progressive view of sexuality, which even though Greek sexuality um, allowed for a what they would they wouldn't have called it homosexuality, but they they allowed for um, male to male sexual acts. It wasn't conceived as two adult males. It was always in the guise of apprenticeship. That the sexual relation was always Socrates, the older male, with Alcibiades, the up-and-coming bachelor. The not-yet-adult, able to, to, to form a... Um... So, Plato brings back from Syracuse a more refined understanding of homosexuality um, in the sense in which he theorizes through the symposium adult male-on-male relations, whereas that would have been, you know, we think, you may think that Greek Greeks were like, oh, cool, you know, like, yeah, two dudes can do it. But no, it wasn't about, it was about the active and the passive relationship, as Foucault brings it about, right? It's about the active adult male with the, you know, uh, young, um the young male to be right that there's a there's a there's a degree of apprenticeship but plato plato uh he 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 doesn't he 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 brings up it's interesting he sells himself to the tyrant of syracuse by saying look i have this idea about these hierarchy of human beings and at the very top <laughs> and the tyrant's like you don't say <laughs> at, at, at the very top it's not just the king it's the philosopher king Right, it's it's not just the monarch; it's the enlightened monarch and the enlightened philosopher king in in his own apprenticeship, which we can leave out for now, um, has a more direct, a more intimate relationship with the ideal forms, with the heaven of ideas, and that is important because what we need is not just a king and his brute 
force. We need an enlightened ruler. Ruler. Because if we have an enlightened rule, we have enlightened subjects, and we have enlightened subjects, then we have a harmony of the whole. We have a we have a we have philosophy um, permeating the the collective. Now, the modern examples, on the one hand, there's been a lot written about Heidegger and his early. Now, by the time World War II came out, Heidegger wasn't too happy, but. Early Heidegger, he at least allows for room to benefit from the upcoming regime. Um, his relationship with Nazism is very, um, you know, strained. But a better example would be um, the early modernist, the high modernist American poet of Ezra Pound. And Ezra Pound went to Italy, and Ezra Pound. Um, ingratiated himself with Mussolini and wanted to be the state poet, the kind of the Plato to the tyrant of Syracuse. It didn't turn out well for him, but he had that inspiration. And um, I think this 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 kind of you know this brings us back to this question of social Darwinism that you brought up a, a while ago. Um, and I was trying to remember the, 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 the first person to kind of theorize social artism. I finally did. Herbert Marcuse, right? Marcuse. Um, and obviously he's writing loosely in these undisciplined um, domains like sociology, right? And he gets criticized pretty quickly. But at the same time, I mean, you and I both know that the that he really was foreseeing the rise of eugenics because in the 20s 30s 40s maybe early 40s but at least in the 20s and 30s eugenics in in the United States was oh sure no that was I was it was hot that was a hot topic this were a lot of the precedents that the Nazis used in Nuremberg about like you know there's a judge and decision that still has not ever been overturned that's like the no more than three generations of idiots. And um, that was used to underpin, uh, you know, a lot of the enforced sterilization laws right. of people with mental disabilities. Um, and again, it, it was, you know, legal precedents that were used to fucking nerve. It was taught throughout, it was right? taught throughout yeah. high schools. Uh, and, and again, it's this goofy thing, almost like with the homosexuality thing in Africa, where it's like we've sent our most fundamentalist people. There was a similar kind of logic to it, where it's like, the U.S. exponents were, you know, worldwide, you know, U.S. exponents of eugenics became, like, little fash icons, right? Like, hmm. and, you know, I don't know. There was there was a worldwide cross-pollination of these kind of ideas, you know, that, that was, it was e- explosive and horrifying. And, I, and I, I worry we're seeing the rise of a lot of the, that kind of racialized thing. But at the, at the same time, it's like, you know, we can't be totally sterile, you know, and, and, and pretend like that there aren't racial tensions in the world and that, you know, just love will resolve it. It's not that it's not a rise. It's just become more acceptable, right? It's become more acceptable with, with, you know, who Baltimore. Um, but this actually brought me back to a point that I blanked out on in the first, on our first session, which was about, um, Malthus. Yeah. And that this whole dynamic between scientific productivity of 
food capacity versus population numbers. Um, just like Spencer, Malthus also inspires and and predicts um, eugenics. Right. Because now Malthus is talking about world population, but the, the Victorian preoccupation was the fact that uh, the savages, the Negroes, the colonized are populating and repopulating at a rate that's baffling to the uh, the Victorian, you know, land-owning subject. Where birth it, rates had already started to decline pretty rapidly after yeah, industrialization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there is there is a and this 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 antinomy this this tension also goes for the same way that the um, and I brought this up on our first podcast podcast that the the English thought of the the Irish. The, Engli- the way the English stereotype the Irish is the way that you still see the extreme racist far-right um, stereotype uh, African-Americans, blacks, is is the gorilla, the monkey. There's, a, there's an interesting correlation between a step back in psychical evolution but a step forward in vital reproductive evolution, right? What's what's the difference between the ape and the man? Well, the man is able to think more, but the ape is able to reproduce more, right? There's something there's something more primordial about their sexuality, as Zizek says. Racism is um, you have to you have to look past stereotypes and see uh, a Lacanian aspect of the 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 stereotyped peoples that are being um, bigoted against, that are being uh, stereotyped and held into these racist conceptions is that the, the one who is racist is racist against the, the class, the type that has a more primordial, direct access to jouissance, to that kernel of the real. Oh, sure. It's like right? it's 100% resentment. Right. right? Yeah. So, that the, so that the black or the savage or the colonized, they... Um, they don't just have now the, the 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 actual rationalization in the discourse is about uh, population rates, but it's also about it, it also gets turned into just stereotypes about um, even the size of the sexual organs, right? That all black men are somehow you know nine inches hung, whereas that's that's an extremity rather than a than a commonly shared type, but the the but the, the same principle remains the same, right? That they have a sort of more sexual... Uh, that, that their access to pleasure, to jouissance, is, is, is more direct. And um, that comes... That, that explains a lot of the, the sort of hysteria about um, race mixing in the 20th century, right? And um, sort of... You know, the story about Emmett Till in Texas, right, being chained up to the back of a truck and uh, dragged along to his death because he whistled at a white woman, right? Mm-hmm. This, 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 uh, our white women need to be protected. That's, that explains Heart of Darkness, the way the Heart of Darkness ends, right? The, the narrator, uh, Marlowe, lying to his wife about how great, you know, <laughs> Kurtz was. Um, which you don't you don't see in Apocalypse Now because Apocalypse Now is much more directly related to the Vietnam War and and that 
uh, aspect of it. But it, it, the part that it leaves out of Heart of Darkness is the the gender. Heart of Dar- uh, Apocalypse Now doesn't get to gender, but Heart of Darkness. That's that's you can't you can't understand the complexity of the ending of the story because it doesn't end with with Kurtz dying in this insanity and talking about you know wiping out all the the the, the natives. I mean, it ends with. Marlowe coming home and lying to his wife uh, to protect her, right? About how and just just as the just as the Aborigines, the 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 natives, the savages have to be protected from the harsh realities. Okay, so maybe this bridges us into Brave New World a little bit, mm-hmm. and you have a very particular reading of the ending where there's like. Where the the oscillation of the hung man, the hanged man, yeah, yeah. right? Like, the 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 not the narrator, but the, but the John John, um, yes, and he, he's lived between both worlds, and he's oscillating between them, and you know, like this is it, it's such an interesting, you know, because it's like between past and future again. It's like I feel like we're there's this like temporal future oriented vector right that he's sort of crucified on right like and I I, I don't know like so I, I, in other words there seems to be like a, 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 a sacrificial logic and even kind of rationalization yes. of industry and the industrialization of you know biopolitical substrate of human society right like the 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 way in which you know sort of like life itself is organized becomes subject to you know sort of political manipulation and engineering Mm -hmm. um and it's it's i i it's kind of i think of chomsky's like you know we're we're manufacturing consent but at the dna level you know like it's it's interesting you bring up you bring up john and you bring up the very last paragraph of the book where he hangs himself and he's swaying north, south, east, and west, right? He's, he's oscillating. But right after we have the first three chapters or so about the, the hatching and conditioning of the London embryos um, in their divorce, in their separation from any sort of real um, reproductive, human reproductive mother and father, right? The total... Right after that, we, we are introduced to John, and we are introduced to John in... He's outside of London. He's unincorporated. He's in these kind of tribal... Reserve, uh, reservations. Re- yeah. yeah, exactly. The reservations. And But he is a mix, right? This is his whole... His, his whole fantastic uh, narrative dynamism is to be the dialectical element between this... Um, proto or this futuristic fascistic cloning society versus the completely natural uh, agrarian sort of unincorporated and he is the son of his father right was one of the researchers on a mission sort of um, Archaeologically, anthropologically, taking stock of information about the societies, and he impregnates one of the native women. Or no, I thought it I'm was sorry. A, no, he his impreg- mother Linda. No, 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 yeah, his no, but but it's he and and sorry. So both of his both of his parents are are from the hatchery. That sounds right. Yeah, because Linda, you're right. But uh, something happens where she gets left behind. Yeah, she got preggers. 
she got pregnant, and that was forbidden. Oh, yeah, viviparous, dirty, blah, blah, blah. Right, right? Yeah. so that was forbidden. Well, she was supposed to be on some kind of birth control with obviously and something. And failed, and now she's she, uh, got a scarlet. So she got left. Yeah. She got left behind, and so his 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 upbringing is very tense because obviously she has no characteristics of of a mother. All of that has been bred out of her, and she just drinks all the time. She's been programmed yeah. from birth to consider the thought of being a mother to be the most abhorrent, right. and repulsive. Uh, and then, obviously, the the men that she keeps with. Obviously, there is there is an example or two of where he has edible conflicts. He tries to kill one of her yeah. boyfriends, and and He's like holding a knife above him while yeah. he's sleeping or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You're yeah. exactly right. And uh, so there's he has a very schizophrenic in the sense of double bind. Yeah. Uh, but what I was going to bring up is is you 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 end with that the thought of John killing himself. Hanging himself, but you also bring up, perhaps not uh, intentionally, his aspects and capacities as a savior, as a mediator yeah. between these worlds. And in fact, right when we're introduced to John, one of the first things we see him in the narrative, when he because he's not introduced in, until like the fourth or fifth chapter, he is watching these rituals where these young boys volunteer. To be, uh, they, they had these big communal gatherings around a around a campfire, and the young boys uh, volunteer to be whipped by the elders of the tribe, to be flogged, and the uh, they their their heroism, their bravery, their constitution is tested by these floggings, and um, they are sort of ranked and and appraised according to how many how many whippings he can take, and he always volunteers because he wants to, he wants to be that he wants to be that sort of he wants to be he wa- he wants to not just be included in the society but belong to use a Bedouzian type of thing. But he doesn't belong, and he's never allowed that opportunity to prove his worth, to prove. Um, his, his capacity, yeah. his power, but it also comes back to Simon Don, and he's not allowed to integrate into the society. He's he's he is old enough to be submitted to this initiation ritual, which is what all the males undergo to be initiated into the society, to belong to the collective, to be to enter that realm of mature individual. But he's never allowed that. So he's actually never allowed to become mature. He's deprived of I right like you know and and, and it's funny because I like I wonder about this again. I'm sorry, I'm reading allegories everywhere, but just like as this question of how do you take these two alien heterogeneous domains right and form connections like can only be once there's a certain internal coherence of each mm-hmm. and a third thing to connect them. Yes, right. Like which is he is the relation. But we, John is the relation between the two. But you're bringing out his deep potentiation, right? The fact that he he's like a, a you know, a, both a, a not permitted. I don't know, external to both, like like external to the relationship between the two worlds, because he doesn't really belong to each. That's because he's a tragic figure, right? He's not. He's not a figure of redemption. The bridging does not succeed. I guess he is, is a tragic the, figure, right? Yes. Like, I mean. And that's the same. This is why uh, he's a 
he is almost and I brought up the the flogging because he's a he's a he's a martyr he's a Jesus figure. Um, he's a man out of out of time, right? He's is, yeah. he's out of time, and the obviously his suicide mirrors the um, subjection to death of which Jesus took part, right? Like in which Jesus took part, right? Like so, there's there's a sense, but he. But he's a tragic figure because it's it's not it's not it's it's not connected to a right. redemptive meta narrative, um, and in fact the one, the other side of the figure the. I know his last name. His is, blood is it condemns the brave new world, yeah. right? Like his last name is Marx, right? Well, the, the the very first character that we yeah it is the the first protagonist, right? He he's not a he's not able to. To, to sort of bridge the gap. He's a, he's the other failed martyr, but he He's a writer, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I mean but he's but he's the most he's the least integrated example we get. We get the least integrated example of the London hatcheries. Um uh, and he's But you wonder how standard it is, right? Like to what degree his Phenomenal, you know, his internal subjective experience of things resembles, you know, I don't know, like people do end up saying things to him that are like, Bernard, aren't you such a weirdo? But like, you know, it, it, I, I don't wonder if there's a, if if that's the the part of the Brave New World is this not fitting in well and requiring state interventions of per- perfumed hallucinogens, right? Yeah, like to adapt you. So, I mean, the, the way I think of the hatcheries in London and Brave New World is, is through the principles of production and seduction. So, Laplanche thinks that seduction is caused, as I brought up last time, uh, through implanting sexual messages in the, um, in the child who doesn't, who lacks the unconscious assemblages to interpret those messages so in a certain sense everyone has been produced to fill a certain um, order everyone's been produced to to fit into a certain class a certain eugenic class right which is alpha beta gamma delta epsilon um, right and if you're if you're the deltas and the epsilons you're 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 the you're the working class you're the you're kind of the slaves and if you're the alphas and the betas and there's different gradations you know you're the you're sort of the you're the ones who you're the one who gives orders right um, but uh, so everyone's been engineered and the the Cutting through the... Or even the, just sits around and writes poetry or whatever. Like, I mean, like, we're giving examples of that, of, like, just purely, you know, kind of for fun jobs, right? As a, well, as a, poetry is, is a little bit outlawed. Only the overseer has, like, access to, like, Shakespeare and these other oh, things. Oh, man. I, sorry, I'm complaining yeah, no. about the 1984, no, where no, the no. protagonist has a friend who's a, maybe a poet or no, something. No, there's, there's no... So, yeah, there's no propaganda in that sense. Where right. Um, the propaganda is, is sort of... Um, the interesting thing is the propaganda is, is ingrained because you not just have the hatcheries where you're hatching these humans out of these cloning and they, they go through the little conveyor belts with the different temperature ranges and the alcohol injections and the so, and the de- deprivation of oxygen in order to get, you know, finer scales of, of the human continuum. Um, but after that, 
you are submitted to these conditioning and and what it's on fractal on fractal ontology the essay on on Huxley but one of the things is there's a tension in the society because it's trying to breed a pure narcissism where for example everyone belongs to everyone else that's the maxim so it's, it's fat and it's funny because that's precisely what Badu accuses Deleuze of wanting or something right for everyone just to just to be able to touch everyone else. I think that's so, a trolling cheat. It's so trolly. Sorry, it was, I, I didn't mean to no, totally derail your point. No, but, but it's, to, it's totally trolling because it's 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 conflating Deleuze with the '60s, with the revolution in in France, with free love. Yeah. But that's that's what's being marketed in Brave New World is is a sort of free love where it's uh, ingrained through conditioning uh, to not form monogamous monogamous relationships. That um, you generally, you know, there's obviously marriages out, outlawed and um, viviparous <laughs> reproduction is outlawed because the males are sterilized through the hatching process and only a small percentage of women uh, are produced that can produce eggs because their eggs are are, 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 are harvested for the future hatchings. But all the males are supposed to be uh, sterilized, at least in theory. And so what, what, what's being done is, uh, is there's the mother and the father. There's the mother who gives nourishment and the father who gives protection. But in this society, the hatchery solves the problem of both. So there's no need for a mother to, to feed and there's no need for a father to provide protection. And in that sense... And this is where this is something that Deleuze and Guattari don't necessarily talk about um, directly, but Freud bases the Oedipus complex decades before in his understanding of what he calls uh, Hilflosigkeit, which is helplessness. That the infant uh, is helpless. And I brought this up to you last time when I said the when I said that Freud actually uses the word instinct with a K in German where he says that the little baby bird has an instinct to fear gravity when approaching the edge of the nest because it can't fly yet. So it has that built into it. Otherwise, it would just fall off and die. Uh, humans don't have that. We don't, we don't have the same instincts as, um, as inferior species, if we will. And there's a certain sense in which we are, mammals in general are born too early. Most mammals are, they're they're born way too early because they they really require the help years and of years, the yeah. mother and the father, not just to learn, but to to provide sustenance and to provide protection. Uh, so there's a helplessness in all mammal species and even in some reptiles and other things. I mean, like, but for most part, mammals and the higher up the higher development up we go, we see that. Uh, the more and more we need our parents. But the hatcheries in uh, Brave New World, they have taken care of hopelessness. And they have not only taken care of hopelessness uh, to that extent, but they, they further it out to the, the early adolescent development because the first thing that happens after we get introduced to the hatcheries is we get introduced to the conditioning center. Right. And one of the things that we are conditioned to dislike is our books and flowers. There's something interesting here. And books and flowers are associated with electrical shocks. 
So the children in their what ages three to five or whatever, they go through hundreds of these drills where they are presented with books and flowers and they are prompted with these electrical shocks. And there's two things going on here where there's a dewiring, right? There's yeah. a dewiring, there is a discouragement, and books and flowers represent the two forms of introversion of disassociating from the collective engineered unconsciousness that Brave New World represents. Um, books allow for independence of thought and allow for understanding of history. History has to be... We have, we have to whitewash the fact that people before the year 20, 50, 40, or the year 600 after Freud um, gave birth... What about by f- reproducing sexually? Right, right. Like we have to, we have to cover that over. And the flowers is to be, yeah. is to is to associate nature outside wilderness with danger, with fear, with anxiety, because the flower really represents Narcissus. Because Narcissus is about an individual ego reflecting on nature and, and and sort of this infinity of of an of a, of a recollection of a reflection between the individual ego and the and nature whereas nature is really in brave new world supposed to be uh, capitalized and monetized and distributed and um, so could, could we say this is like the imposition of an early adulthood in a certain way that that like by yes. re- refusing the ability to yes. identify with the innocence of the flower Yes, right. That's that's a good way to put it too. I, I totally agree because, um, uh, really early on, they show toddlers, five or six years old, a girl and a boy, and they are playing, and they sh- and and Huxley narrates these this girl and this little boy playing, um, and what they do is they are playing at sexuality. They're exploring sexuality, but they do it. He says with with the sense of a scientist. Yeah. Not and it, it, this gets back to like Foucault, the difference between um, uh, the art of love and the science of sex. And there's no art of love. There, it's it's all about the science of sex. And the little boy in the example given starts to cry, and he starts to he's 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 overwhelmed by the intensities, or it's 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 it's, it's he doesn't have the you know, pre-prepared, pre-programmed abilities to sort of integrate this reality of sexuality. And some little workers come and they they pick him up and they, um, and what's described is that they're going to take him to uh, to a psychologist who specializes in abnormal psychology because for this society, two children playing at sex and someone being disturbed by the sex acts and plays is is the one with the problem he's the one that needs to be diagnosed whereas for us you know we uh, at least in the victorian era and you can assume up till i mean you can you can just think of huxley and his parents i mean think about all the even in andy Ibis, we we get to see we get to hear about um and foucault talks about this too these absurdly complex machines um, created to prevent children from masturbating, from exploring their sexuality. This is we we get to hear a lot about um, what is it Schroeder, 
What's his name? No, not Schroeder. Um, God damn it. The, the piano s- player from Charlie? No, the solar anus. Oh, oh, just Schraber. Schraber. Thank you. Thank you. Right? His his father um, concocted, uh, created a, a sort of um, restraining apparatus to keep him from... You know, and this is they they talk about this a little bit, at least at length, I think, to describe um, his schizophrenic ideations. Um, so, and really, I just wanted to boil this down and, and just say that by cutting out helplessness, one also cuts out where Freud designates the bipolarity of the need for nourishment and the uh, associated sexual gratification, right? The child's need for nourishment from the mother or her substitute, it inhabits a, <clears throat> a sexual sort of embed, embeddedment of adult sexuality. But all of that is pre-programmed in, in Brave New World. So Oedipus is completely fragmented in Brave New World. Um, but it's replaced by this really interesting uh, collective group. It's a group narcissism. See, that's the thing. When I, when I, when I, when I talked about the flower, the individual is supposed to um, negate its own egoistic narcissism. Because the true individual, the true ego is the colony, right? We get to see Bernard Marx being completely awkward in this uh, drug-infused collective orgy. Everyone's taking what they call Soma, right? Right. Which is from ancient... um, This is a sort of ancient designation of the, the miracle drug. There have been... Terrence McKenna is a... Um, oh no! You know Terrence McKenna. Yeah, I do. Yeah, the CCRU was reading him, so he's got at least that going for. Well, him. he wrote the he wrote a book, Food of the Gods, and, and it's basic. It's right. basic hypothesis is we need to find out what soma is because it's this, and he he locates it in psilocybin mushrooms, right? So, but it doesn't matter what it's called or what it is, but it's it's a group eros. There's not supposed to be a monogamous egoistic eros. And, and this gets back to the way Plato talked about Eros. Plato talked about Eros, and this is how Freud takes it up, Eros versus Thanatos, the death drive versus the life drive. Plato says that, uh, well, in the symposium with the, um, it doesn't matter, the guy that, that's talking about homosexual love is that tyrants are the ones that are afraid of Eros. They're afraid of love because it forms... Units forms unities. It forms larger molecules of society uh, that don't go directly through the social body, right? So there's something threatening in love to uh, to tyrannical dispositions. Man, that's I think that's a beautiful place to close about like what should you know what can philosophy do. And and I, and I think it's not the neoliberal, like, we just need to love and we'll get over our differences, right? I think it's a different kind of, of question about, like, t- you know, 
tyranny and despair and dependence, right, needing to be counteracted with a, a kind of hope and a kind of joy, right? All the you know qualified in a certain way, right? But I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, 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 but I, I wonder to what extent this is a kind of branding or 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 just like a a, a request that philosophy adopt a better mood, but like. You know, I don't know. Something, something I think about is sort of like the a, a kind of a, a really negative and negational turn on on the part of philosophy writ large. I mean, I guess this is one of the things I worry about, and that it's kind of con con coextensive with the rise of the alt right. And what, anyway, I don't know. So, well, the question of love. Yeah, I mean that gets us to the root of the word philosophy. Right. The love of wisdom, <laughs> and if you want to exercise the double genitive, the the wisdom of love. Um, and this is what I think is trying to be synth- synthesized in Plato's Symposium. And I know I've brought it up. It it, it, it makes sense that I brought it up uh, because I feel like the two texts that Brave New World is dialoguing with is Symposium. Indirectly, but directly with civilization and its discontents. That's why I wrote the paper on Freud. That's the text that I primarily, you know, use to describe it. But I mean, with with the symposium, this is a dialogue on love, and um, and the interesting thing is. For example, I mean, you you discredited the you know, universal love, love everyone. I mean, one thinks of the Beatles. All you need is love. Just that there's a very facile that we that you need to substantiate it, or like, I I, I don't know. It's it's easy it's easy to re, to reduce, you know, a, a series of complex social and political problems to like let's just all get along, and mm-hmm. it's not really taking into account this strategic, uh, you know, getting along is a tactic. Yeah, right? but love and tolerance are different. Right. I no, mean, that's that's definitely that's, that's definitely right. That's and and that's what the right gets the left on is, yeah. The, the token of tolerance is either hypocritical or taken too far, but I, I will say that there's something interesting where Plato tries to divorce politics from love. He tries to show that love is the relation of. Um, of units and is a concatenation of units that doesn't go through politics. And I think that Deleuze and Guattari, I mean, it makes sense. Deleuze being such an anti-Platonist, I mean, he pretty much says it in those words. Um, for him, love is, is, is a question of desire, right? I mean, it's a question of, uh, of 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 interest and investment, and I remember in Claremont when you gave your paper and you got you got some question you got some bullshit question about about love yeah and if so, I yeah. if I recall I I kind of um I remember you said something and then I I sort of followed up on the question and brought up um this question about anti-Oedipus and love and, and how 
I mean, it's too easy because this is where Freud is. This is interesting. I mean, this this gets us to the heart of Antiedipus. Deleuze's anti-Freudianism in Antiedipus is all is is really rooted in anti-Platonism. There's there's a there's a straight line running from Plato to Freud, and um, it doesn't matter that Freud doesn't talk too much about Plato, except to bring up Eros and Thanatos in his late life. But it's a question of the the anti-Platonism that Deleuze sees is 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 at target in his discussion of schizoanalysis and and his disagreement with where love resides because for him it can escape politics precisely because desire from the start is political that you can't separate love from politics or make it a make it a, a separate domain and that's what Plato tries to do, and I think that's what Freud tries to do, because what Freud is seeing he's he's grossly metaphysical by seeing Eros as a process of individuals. He sees the life drives in terms of Eros, and he sees Eros as building up these concatenations, and so he's confusing a biological or physiological or physical approach to what creates for larger unities or units and the way that Deleuze and Guattari see love and they don't they don't see it necessarily in terms of units it's not about sort of a parallel politics um, that it's inherently political and where do you go from that so I mean and this gets back to this kind of runs through the thread right what does philosophy have to contribute to to the dialogue about where we go, I mean, where we go from here. To the to any dialogue. I mean, look, even if it's just an abstract love of humanity and a con, you know concern for others, that's that's great, right? But I don't wonder if there is something be, beyond it that you know this more directional and more you know coherentizing and helping us less anthropocentric. Maybe, but, you know, maybe more anthropocentric, more directly focused on how do we arrange utopian international politics and so on. I don't know. Like, well, I mean, this goes back to what I was saying about investment and interest in, in like, treating the, the globe, the earth, as a as a territory to be preserved for future generations, right? Like, if if we end up with a pure anthropocentrism, we get back to that sterile dialectic between... A sort of long-term investment wherein we don't immediately uh, assume the profits of a satisfaction versus the short-term interest of, well, fuck the environment because we need jobs, right? I mean, like, that, I think, is not... That's, that's anthropocentric in a bad sense. Now, I think to bring up Nietzsche, to be anthropocentric in a good sense would be to be considering man as in that dynamic desperation, that tension between ape and overman, right? So anthropocentrism doesn't need to curtail, hold back. It needs to be um, over-anthropocentric. And that has to be understood in, in a very different way than 
sort of any humanism, any anthropocentrism could be could be thought. I mean, that has to be to be thought in the sense of a dynamic tension of where we will be. It has to has to remain open to a future dynamic that I don't think anthropocentrism in its sort of base stereotypical way um, does. And you know, I'll I'll try to close down by saying that this this is I think part of what um I think this is part of what Levinov starts to creep back in because he's thinking the face not just um vertically as a kind of um, appearance of God in the face, right? And that, and that um, being held hostage. No, it's an imminent, like, reciprocal infinity or something like that, right? It, yeah. it, I mean, I think it is, and I think that in that sense it's futural. And I, yeah. I think that that's the futurality of the face in Levina opens up to what I think Levin, uh, Laruel means by the future Christ, that the futurality of, of the other is in the same sense the futurality of 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 Christ in Laurel's sense, right? That that it's in that sense um, there's no paradigm for reciprocity that and, and Simondon distinguishes between a rapport and a relation, right? A rapport is between two sort of dualistic terms, like a hylomorphic schema of a matter and a form, whereas a relation is um, is a third term. It has what he says the rank of being, and uh, and in that sense, the face to face relation. Uh, constitutes a third term that is is also versed somehow, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, and part of why I brought this up is because we've been talking about politics, but we haven't been talking about religion. And who distinguishes the two more so than than Levinas? I mean, that's at the heart of all of his work. If 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 politics should be understood in a Levinasian sense, it has to be understood already on the basis of a of the conditions of possibility of religion. Um, and for him, religion is already caught up in this interesting tension between the sacred and the holy. Uh, and the sacred would be a kind of, it'd be a, a re-territorialization of a fetishization. Uh, and for him, the holy is, is uh, already undergoing this secularization of this universalization of of uh, of religiosity and so in that sense you know we need to start asking like how can philosophy continue to meditate and, and keep in mind this dimension of the holy right what does that what does that mean and I I, I think that, that that comes down to the question of why liberals lost it's liberals are always you know it's it, what I what I kept hearing was 
oh, they want us to accept, you know, these differentiated modes of existence like homosexuality, you know. Um, Subversive. The, they want us to accept the other, and if we right. don't immediately, then we are, we are, we are already, we are condemned. We, right. we are condemned as 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 racist. So the dialogue stops. I mean, if you want to stop a dialogue, you call someone Hitler. I mean, or word. just call them stupid for forever, or you know, let let them get inundated in an atmosphere where they're constantly told their enemies are trying to disrupt and distort their way of life and are traitors against America and are basically themselves fascist. You know? What yeah, I mean? but that but that comes from their own side. I mean, I but yeah, I, I guess that's that's what I mean is that the, there's there's too much of the sacred on both sides, right? Where there's there's too much reterritorialization. Um, in terms of politics, um, so what I mean, what do you think about like that? We need to reclaim some traditional values, at least the humanist, universal ones, as the legacy of the West. Uh, you know, away from the the nationalists who want to pretend like they're you know limit you know limited kind of racist, bigoted, anti globalist kind of anti humanist ultimately. I mean this is sort of the thing that's really shocking to me about it is kind of how deep the nihilism goes. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think part of the nationalists especially I mean and we're talking about white nationalists. They they've already lost. I mean capital has shown its reckless abandon of 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 nationalism. It doesn't it doesn't require a nation, and part of this is built into our imperialistic past. We inherited the imperialistic vision of society from the English. Guattari always looks at Japan. He always looks at how they have one eye turned towards the past and one eye turns towards the future. They are able to sort of, in a synchronized fashion, re-territorialize and de-territorialize um, and that has been a successful model for them and precisely one of the reasons I, I like why, that idea of like trying to somehow surf yeah in between the gap between mm-hmm. world, you know like it's a very dynamic way of thinking of that that third that third connecting term and yeah, yeah so. and they have done it precisely through technology it's interesting that they at least um since the 70s, 80s, 90s, they've become the forefront edge of, of technological development. And yet, it's precisely because of technology that their most sacred uh, rituals in the past were forced to be given up. And what I mean by that is if you think about the their mode of martial warfare and territoriality was centered on the samurai. And with the rise of the uh, of of, fi- of gunpowder, with the rise of in- the industry of firearms, they were forced to give up the territoriality of the daimyo running a, a shogun, you know, running the these territories, um, and yet, I mean. It, after World War II, after what should have been a death knell for their society, they turned to technology as the, you know, as the solving, as solving their current problems. Um, so there, there's something hyper um, 
critical, hypersensitive about how they they were able to thread that needle. Um, That's interesting. Because it's it's the same thing that happened with with the dialectic between the North and the South and the American in in America in their Civil War, right? The the industrial conflict was already embedded when they when the founders met for um, the Articles of Constitution, but you know it had to be the needle had to be thread more and more between the agricultural way of life and the industrial way of life, and the more industry advanced, the less um, slavery was a viable societal organization so you know i mean and and now and now and now we're left with we're st- we're still kind of left with this urban agricultural divide um to such an extent that the less we saw the states that lost right we saw michigan wisconsin ohio that were that were I mean, these, these, these may be farm belt states, but they're not. I mean, they're majority they're, populated they're, by farmers. There are very few people involved they, in. But it's not known as a farm belt. It's known as the Rust Belt. Right. There's more of that than anything. And right? and and as automation uh, furthers on, the interest is where are all the 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 industrial labor jobs, right? Sure. So as those diminish, the you know conservatism gets 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 its talking point. Um, where it's much more rational and much more immediate of an interest to um, to people who've been displaced from those jobs to think that well the we're not going to be retrained, right? Right. The, they, the, they've heard that line from liberal politicians for thirty years. We're gonna we're gonna retrain you. It's yep. you know you've got to. But you've got to take on some initiative too to get to get ready for this new world. And, it's, and like, it's a re- that's a realistic statement, but the the romantic in the negative sense. Um, but it's not been real. It's been it's, it's a neoliberal fantasy that we're actually going to ad- adapt. But it's but it's more you know, real than these. saying as Trump did and played off of that we're going to bring back. You know, coal mining jobs. I mean, you call it a fantasy, but there's you know there's a there's a job boom and an economic boom waiting under the ground. You know, and if we actually tap these resources, we shouldn't if we care about the long term viability of the planet. Well, that's the tension, right? I mean, but that gets us back to that. That there is real. You know, there would be real economic benefits to tapping those resources. You know what I mean? Like there is a, and and anyway, I don't know. But um, but lot man, this was so good. Lots of lots of stuff to to get into in the future. Unless you have a f- final closing thoughts before we. Um. You know, I don't know. I was I was. What I was saying about comedy earlier was that. You know, Mark says right. History repeats itself as farce. Right, it it it's the difference of repetition. This this comes up in Deleuze's difference of repetition, right? That it's it it's it happens as tragedy. It repeats itself as farce, right? So it's the question of repetition. It's the question of um, what is comedic today? What is the? And I'm not talking about any particular you know, stand-up artist, but you think about the difference in comedy, say, in the 50s and, and very early 60s versus 
what was allowed with um, the occurrences of people like Lenny Bruce and Richard Pryor and George Carlin. What what was allowed to be funny, to be comedic? And um, that's something that I think philosophy to this day uh, hasn't yet formalized because comics themselves have talked about the revolution that was allowed for with these various comics. And we could add on others like um, Andrew Dice Clay um, and uh, Bill Hicks and Louis C.K. And, you know, you always have the examples of like David Letterman and Jay Leno re-territorializing on their own uh, avant-garde edge by becoming talk show hosts. Um, whereas the true comics comic is, 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 is still dealing with these modes of, uh, dialogue that these rhetorical performances that really what they're showing through their, through their comedy, through their standup comedy, uh, even is the way in which the least amount of signification, uh, sorry, the least amount of um, form, the least amount of of material required for the most signification. This is how Nietzsche defines sort of philosophical potency: is the the most densely packed significatory explosion. Man, actually, I like that a lot because that's almost like an information theoretic yes, thing it is. about like the least predictable possible. Yes. And to get Terrence McKenna says something about this, about the internet that like maybe the internet's a trap to catch an alien because it's about how do we you know, stack together the, the weirdest, least predictable possible combinations of things and it's by building this info rhizome where you can just connect anything to anything else. <laughs> um, and so you build up these really complicated information you know, anti-entropic kind of configurations, and maybe that's already in it. that's already very very alien kind of intelligence to us. And at some point in a development, might as well be the, the alien kind of thing, right? Say that last point the, the, about the alien. Um, well, that you know, because of the the kind of the anti-entropic dimension of like assembling the least predictable, weirdest possible yes. combinations of kind of of signifiers and signs um, that it's it's kind of an, an, an already an alien structure to our intelligence, right, in some ways, even if it's just combining different individuals' intelligences in different ways, right? Um, that is kind of like a trap to assemble the weirdest, most alien, increasingly auto-alienating kind of system that's... But, I mean, isn't that, isn't that potentially what, like... If we can separate good and bad comedy, but like in the joke, the joke is the most economical form of fomenting a thought, of implanting a thought. If I may even go to the uh, notion of inception, of no, 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 of incepting a thought. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's totally the kind of tempor- right, temporality that like that at least CCRU is talking about with what's going on with the development of the internet. Is it's actually like. Of you know an, an alien intelligence assembling itself, you know from the future perspective out of the res, you know enemy resources of the present, yeah. the present time. Right? I mean, it's, like, it, in that sense, philosophy and comedy. I mean, in their 
um, coherence is about incepting a thought. Yeah. And 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 so when I think about a comedy telling a joke and it's. Um, Economical sig- signification. Right. Um, that a number of benefits are gained, right? Whereas when we talked, when we first talked about earlier, uh, the circulation of thought, the how's the marketplace of philosophy is pretty shitty. Well, yeah, because the comedian, the stand-up comedian, is able to um, circulate thought in a way that breaks down many barriers. Yeah, to marshal his, down, to marshal his errors with much more consciousness than yes, you know, a, a, to even be the, the, the alacrity of philosophers is capable. The comedian of, right? is shooting out these philosophical arrows, right. and this gets back to what you said about the physicist. Um, and this is before we started recording, but you talked about the the nerdy physicist fantasizing about the girl in his class <laughs> right. and something to do. <laughs> they go, he goes home to do homework problems about, you know, atomic thrust. Um, it it bypasses a number of associations that allow for. Uh, it's not even. It's like a desublimation or whatever. But it's the same thing with the comedian. The comedian and and the and and the well pointed joke. The comics comic. Like I think again, Louis C.K. But not just Louis C.K. I mean, George Carlin talked about it directly. Uh, I think Louis C.K. is able to talk about it less directly where he's not he, he doesn't have to talk about directly about about issues or he's he's able to bypass the associative links that would yeah no, censor no, no. That's, it's brilliant and, and this is spread of ideas this is totally the freudian point yes that it's, that it's like the, the 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 sense of the joke and why we laugh yeah. is that it like it permits this truth to cross enemy lines mm-hmm. right Tell and the truth, but tell a slant, as uh, Emily Dickinson says. It, it makes it easier for us to integrate foreign ideas mm-hmm. or things that may be like, you know, this is this is this is sometimes why you have to, you know, I, I, I don't know. There there isn't about human psychology that way about like if you can tell it, it doesn't sound half as mean if you can tell with a smile on your face while you're laughing and that stuff because it like lets you get past the the basic barriers and that might cause someone to reject it out of hand before contemplating it. Yes. And with a joke, it, I think it's, it, it, there may be a physiological, it like slows down your process. There's a disarming. Because it's paradoxical yeah. or whatever, like it permits, you know, I don't, I don't know, the ambiguity permits it to pass through. And then when you unfold the package, there's this thing that explodes. But because it's funny, you've already built up these, like this membrane around it. Yeah. So that it's paradoxical explosion doesn't overwhelm you or something. And you can actually take in the grain of truth that's at like the heart of it without it being too powerful. Oh yeah, I, that's exactly right. I mean, you're, you're describing perfectly the the role of the censor in, in Freud's thought, and I, that's that's kind of I think where comedy comes in. And and just to bring it back to the lose, right? He distinguishes the two avenues of comedy of, in logical sense, the the heights of irony and the depths of of humor, um, and how. Um, the question of the the two and their relation and their function and their necessity for any specific topic or any specific idea, I think, is is different. Um, such that, like, I feel like uh, someone like George Carlin, who's talking denotatively and very directly, he is he is trying to show irony but he says it as he shows it. And so there's something where he's still too... 
he, while he's breaking down societal norms for what is allowed to be discussed openly in this humoristic way, he's also um, talking too directly to... He's, he's still talking through the associative links that the unconscious... Uh, that, that, well, that the conscious and the pre-conscious have built barriers for. But he's doing it in such a way that he's, he's not worried about bypassing them or, or being filtered. He's actually trying to break down those those barriers whereas right directly humor, attacking the uh, the anti yes irony immune system directly yeah. attacking the 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 barriers whereas humor kind of is is more subterranean and is allowed to to bypass those um, associative links in such a way that the unconscious is talked to more directly whereas irony directly attacks our earnestness at, I, a, at an existential level yeah <laughs> right? and to like, such a point where we we could fail to uh perceive the irony yeah yeah where that's that's that's, that's the, i think that's the humor is much or more like delayed apt. right yeah like, humor is much more apt to be perceived it's much more direct whereas irony in that sense in the sense of the unconscious whereas irony is much more direct to the conscious to the preconscious it's much more direct in, the, in its assailment and its assault uh to such an extent that our oppression our forces could be way too uh too apt to preclude it from having a an effect so that's that's the double that's the double um danger of either one and too much and too heavy of a dose uh, and you know that's the same thing with comedy I mean there's a sense in which you not only have to do work prepping the joke and for allowing for the punchline to fall but you you can't be um, too direct or indirect so that you you don't I mean you you can't if you're too indirect the there's no way to compromise the reality with the spoken word but if it's too direct there's no joke being told there has to be uh, a controlled circumlocutory action being going on and I think that that's part of I think that's part of why philosophy is um, and its circulation is rare philosophy itself as Laurel points out isn't rare Philosoph- I mean, philosophizing is a sort of spontaneous uh, thing, but philosophy and its um, decisionality is a little rare, and it's because it's uh, it's condemned to this sort of unitary directionality, and 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 it's and it's and it, and it gets still it gets dealt with in a wide variety of manners. I mean, Nietzsche takes a much more writerly, aesthetic, liter- literary sort of way of going around thought in order to incept our affects. Whereas someone like uh, Kant or Spinoza, for example, the best example would be Spinoza, although Kant does this in his own way, and Descartes too. Descartes, with his meditations, is taking an anecdotal path, but Spinoza in his ethics, right, is actually trying to penetrate reason directly through an, an, an... a geometrical order of reasoning, of proofs and and, 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 and arguments and, and notes and, and definitions and axioms. He's axiomatizing in the most direct way um, thought to be prepared for the penetration of, of his arguments. And I think that 
This is interesting because Laura Well, before philosophy too, before we get into the area of philosophy and non-philosophy, he's very skeptical about axiomatization because he's still, actually even in, I think even in philosophy and non-philosophy, he's still, he's still skeptical about axiomatization. And it's not until we move into philosophy three that he understands that the way non-philosophy axiomatizes is not the same way that philosophy is pretended to. And that it's, 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 and that what he was calling descriptions of the one in philosophy two, he starts to talk about in terms of axioms that we can have, we can describe the one in terms of these axioms because really what non-philosophy is, but we have to understand axiom in a non-philosophical way because particularly it calls into question the question of suppositions and presuppositions, right? So, um, but this is precise. But Spinoza shows how philosophy philosophically promotes axioms um, because it it's not questioning its own self-legitimacy and self-authorizing, right? So it, that's the difference between an axiom in a non-philosophical sense and in the philosophical sense. The philosophical sense is a spontaneous um, sort of self-sufficiency. Decision about a position. Yes, yeah. it's a decision. But, it, but non-philosophy already calls into question the foundational role of these these axioms uh, no that's good i think that's that stops us where we started which is like halting problems and mm-hmm. and uh yeah so cool um so this has been yet another uh exciting installation of theory talk uh featuring taylor atkins yep and myself joseph weisman and uh yeah we'll be back in the next few weeks uh to talk some more and hopefully a little more uh a little more a little more fun a little lighter next time maybe is my uh my my, my just whisper of the dream really briefly but um all right everyone Thanks so much for joining us for Theory Talk with Joseph Weissman and Taylor Atkins. This episode was recorded on December 17th, 2016. Please follow us on iTunes or Stitcher and have a great week.